This is case one from the transmission of the light. Shakyamuni Buddha. Shakyamuni Buddha realized enlightenment on seeing the morning star. He said, I and all beings on earth together attain enlightenment at the same time. Shakyamuni left his palace one night when he was 19 years old and shaved his head. After that, he spent six years practicing ascetic exercises. Subsequently, he sat on an indestructible seat, so immovable that there were cobwebs in his brows, birds' nests on his head, and reeds growing up through his mat. Thus he sat for six years. In his thirtieth year, on the, on the first day of the twelfth month, he was suddenly enlightened when the morning star appeared. Then he spoke the foregoing words, his first lion roar. After that, he spent 49 years helping others by teaching, never staying in seclusion. With just one robe and one bowl, he lacked nothing. He taught at over 360 assemblies, and then finally entrusted the treasury of the eye of the truth to Kashyapa. And the transmission has continued to the present day. Indeed, this is the root of that transmission and practice of the true teaching from that point has been conveyed to this day. The behavior of Shakyamuni Buddha during his lifetime is a model for his disciples. Even though he may have had the 32 special marks of greatness and the 80 kind of refinements, he kept the form of an old mendicant, not different from anyone else. Even though what the Buddha pointed out and explained in more than 360 meetings over 49 years, was not the same. The various stories, parables, metaphors, and explanations did not go beyond the principle illustrated in the story of his enlightenment. So last Thursday was December 8th. which 2,500 years ago was the day of Shakyamuni's realization. That time Siddhartha Gautama, the day was fully awakened to a reality that is beyond time and space, beyond life and death, beyond dualities. It is a momentous day in our tradition, and chronologically speaking, it's considered to be the day Buddhism was born. Every year, this, day's, this date rolls in, right? And every year we commemorate it by looking at the life of the Buddha. So we can better appreciate what it means to be a, a disciple, what it means to be a practitioner. 
So we can understand what it means to embody the practice through what we do here, what we do every day. So we can better understand that what we are practicing is not separated from everyday engagements. This is where the practice is found. This is where realization is at. It is also an opportunity for us to appreciate the path that Shakyamuni opened up for us through verbal teachings and through personal examples, the way he led his life. But to, to truly show appreciation does not end with reading about Shakyamuni's life, listening to a talk about it. Those are just pointers. To truly appreciate is to truly embody, to truly practice. As you know, the Inno, at the morning liturgy, the Inno chants the name of past teachers and then says, may we appreciate their benevolence and show their, our gratitude by accomplishing the enlightened way together. May we do it through and by our own practice. Rather than creating a separation between our own lives, which may, we may find chaotic, we may find problematic, challenging, to the life of Shakyamuni Buddha, who we think had what we do not have. That was not the teaching. So to accomplish the enlightened way together means to examine our own discipline, our own resolve, and to be thankful by strengthening our commitment to practice. So when we hear or read about the life of the Buddha, before and after realization, we need to ask, what can I learn from this? How do I apply what I learn? What does it mean today? Not what it meant 2,500 years ago. And this is an opportunity to remind ourselves of the life of the Buddha. Some of us may have heard this before, and then a couple of you may be new. So I'd like to go through that in a concise way. So Shakyamuni or Siddhartha Gautama back then grew up as a prince. And his father heard that uh, he may, his son may be a spiritual leader. Actually, when he was born, uh, there was this sage, this spiritual man who came by and said that this kid will either be a great ruler or a great spiritual leader. And his father 
wanted to make sure that he will inherit the kingdom and he wanted to prevent him from becoming a spiritual leader. So he sheltered him. He made sure that all his needs are met at the palace or whatever a palace was at that time. And uh, he wanted to make sure that he's not exposed to everyday challenges, difficulties. Suffering of everyday life. So he lived in the palace, had all his needs met, and at some point there was this lingering feeling in him, a sense that something is not quite right, something is missing. And he was able to venture out. And when he ventured out, he got a glimpse of life as it is. He encountered an old man, a sick man, a corpse, and an ascetic. Now, even up to this point, for us, learning from this, you know, we create our own sheltered reality. We close the door. We close the windows. We think, well, I'm now protected. And there is an illusion that we create, and that illusion actually grows. And in the practice, especially at the beginning of practice, we ask ourselves, we ask of ourselves to venture out, as he did, and to encounter reality, to encounter squarely pain, suffering, difficulties, life as it is. So he came back to the palace, but he came back with a seed. And that seed grew, and as it grew, he dealt with basic questions of life. Why is it like that? Why do we, as human beings, why are we exposed to this? Why do we have to deal with that? What is impermanence? Who is it that goes through those experiences? Is it me? What is me? What am I made of? What is life? And that seed grew to a point that it became unbearable. So one day, he actually by then had a wife and a child. One day he decided to give it all up, shave his head, and run and escape in the middle of the night. Leave it all behind. And devote his entire life to realizing, to breaking through, to understanding. And that is also something we are 
asking of ourselves as practitioners, not so much to shave our head, although some of us do, to shave our head and leave it all behind and run away from home. But we are asking ourselves to examine our relationships with things, with people, with ideas, with our thoughts. And to ask, can I let it go? Can I leave that all behind? Not physically to leave it behind, but to leave it behind while we are in the midst of it. Which I think sometimes can be more challenging. So he shaved his head and he left. And he joined the ascetics. And he practiced with them for six years. Got really good at it. Got really good at depriving the body. Living on, as the story goes, one grain of rice a day. To a point that you could see his spine through his stomach. And they say he was one of the best. So one day, he went down the river to get some water. He was so weak, he fell into the water, into the river, and almost drowned. And a milkmaid by the name Sujata came by, helped him out, gave him some milk and rice, and revived him. And it is said that while he was eating, the other ascetics, some of the other people, saw him eating and ridiculed him for being weak, spiritually speaking. And that is also something we encounter. Other people may be saying, what are we doing here? What are you doing? You're wasting your time. Maybe we ask ourselves, what are we doing here? Are we wasting our time? Sometimes there, is, there are two voices inside us, in our own heads. This is what I need to be doing, and another voice says, no. There's something else you have to be doing. Look at everybody else. There are many ways we can become conflicted, internally conflicted. So, he experienced compassion, kindness, as Sujata helped him up out of the river, revived him. And then he thought to himself, I spent all these years depriving the body in order to refine spirituality. And yet this woman came by and showed this beautiful act of kindness in such a simple and unassuming way. 
And he decided to leave the asceticism practice and to explore on his own. And at that point, he experienced both extremes, living in a palace, having all his needs met, taking care of the body, to the other side of it, to the other extreme of depriving the body. And he realized at that point that neither path is viable, neither path works. And then he set foot on a different path. One that he will explore on his own. And will not rest until he realizes. So he practiced for a few more years. In that, with that mindset, with that intention. And then, at one point, he decided to sit down and not get up until he realizes. And he probably knew that this is the time it will happen. It needs to happen. So he sat down with this conviction. He said, Though my skin, my nerves, and my bones shall waste away, and my lifeblood go dry. I will not leave this seat until I have attained the highest wisdom, the supreme enlightenment that leads to everlasting contentment. He meditated on his breathing, in and out, as we do. It was the eve of the full moon. During the first part of the night, many evil thoughts described as being like the evil god Mara, crept into his mind. Thoughts of desire, craving, fear, and attachments arose. Yet, Shakyamuni did not allow these thoughts to disturb his concentration. This is the practice. This is what we do. We sit. And while we sit, we experience. There's no avoiding that. We experience all kinds of thoughts. Thoughts, emotions, memories, sensations, as he did. And exactly as he did, we are practicing, attending to one point, focusing on one point, on one pointedness, so we can create stable place, stable position from which to observe their rising and vanishing thoughts, emotions, sensations. Namada is, as you may know, is considered what we call the devil. But in Buddhism it's not quite the same. It's really all us it's our own delusions that appear as thoughts, sensations, feelings. So Mala came by and, try, and kept trying to destabilize Shakyamuni. 
to make him change his mind. But he didn't. And at some point, Mala said, okay, let's say you realize whatever it is you think you're going to realize. You hear by yourself. Who's going to vouch? Who's going to prove of it? Who's going to say, great job? And then the Buddha touched the ground and said, this ground is my witness. I do not need anybody else to approve of this or of me. And that was enough. For him, that was enough at that point. But is it enough for us? Is it enough? Or is the voice in the head louder than the voice of reality? The voices in the head being mother. What do we trust? Well, we know what we are used to trust. And we come into practice and we mess with what we are used to trust. But it's not so simple, obviously. It's not that clear. We try and we try and we try and we try. And we fall down and we get up and we try again. We lose trust, we regain it. Over and over and over again. That's why it's called practice. And that's okay. It's okay as long as we get up, clean up, move on. You fall down seven times, you get up eight times. This ground is my witness. As it says, with one ball and one robe, he lacked nothing. He lacked nothing. Without the robe and ball, he lacked nothing. So after that, after this, Mala gave up. And Shakyamuni said even more firmly and strengthened his determination to not be moved by the passing thoughts. He said with the intention to dive deeply into the fundamental question of the human existence and the inevitable predicament of living a life in a physical form. He sat and concentrated on the question of his own identity. Examining, is there such a thing I can call me? Who am I? Who is the one that is subjected to sickness, old age, and death? As he observed deeply, he began to realize that what we call a self is actually unsubstantiated and does not exist onto itself. And this is a question we need to ask and only we can examine. When Huike came to Bodhidharma, Bodhidharma asked him, what is it that you want? 
Bodhidharmas and Huika said, my mind is driving me mad. I can't seem to find a equanimity, peace. And Bodhidharma said, okay, go get me your mind. I'll put it to rest for you. I'll give you peace of mind. So Huike went to search for his mind. He went to search for that which is bothering him, for that which he thought is creating the problem or the problems. And again, this is what we need to do. We sit and we look. What is it? Where is it? Who am I? Not what I think the problem is. Where is the problem coming from? Who is the one that is bothered by all this? We sit and we test the assumptions one by one. And one by one they crumble. If if we do it, if we really take it on full time. And, and this is important. I think some of us may feel like we are full-time practitioners. It doesn't mean to show up every day and to wear robes. It just means to take on this question 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's all it means. I mean, it doesn't have to look a certain way, but it has to be practiced a certain way or with certain intention. We don't just ponder this once in a while and then go back to old habits. Because that's, that's never going to take down the walls. If we want to practice, we have to practice. Full time. So he sat and he looked and he realized there is no such thing I can call me. And what he woke up to is interdependent origination. All things are one. Because there is no such thing I can call me. All things are one. Interdependent origination. Pratitya Samutpada in Sanskrit. Now I think we see that, we understand that. In a profound way, we do understand that. You look at the forest and you understand. We see that nothing exists onto itself. Everything co-arises. Life, death, decay. One thing that appears in many ways. But to see it externally and to understand it internally is totally different. Or to understand it cognitively versus understanding it in the gut, totally different. So he said, wonder of wonders, I, all beings, the great earth, all the wisdom and virtue, of the awakened one to thusness. And then he said, but because of our upside down views, we fail to see that. 
Now, Kezan Zenshi said, this eye is not Shakyamuni Buddha. Even Shakyamuni Buddha comes from this eye. And it, is, it does not only give birth to Shakyamuni Buddha. All beings on earth also come from this eye. Just as when you lift up a net, all the holes are raised. In the same way, when Shakyamuni was enlightened, so too were all beings on earth enlightened at the same time. Of course, at the same time. Because there is no other time. There are no many times or many beings. It's just one thing that is not a thing. And when we hear this, internally there are many voices, or maybe one loud voice that says, no way. Not now, anyway. I mean, sooner or later, we're going to have to accept it. But I think we want to put it on hold for now. So being upside down, as he says, we do not recognize interdependent origination. And we become convinced of our assumption that there is such an entity we can call me. And of course, this unexamined assumption becomes the greatest burden of our lives and the root cause of suffering. We protect it, fear for its existence, worry about its worthiness in relation to others, and experience distress and restlessness. Because as long as there is an idea of a self, there is someone who takes the ongoing challenges of everyday life in a personal manner. And often unfair, right? It seems unfair. Why is this happening to me? I deserve a different set of circumstances and opportunities. I. I am disappointed with the way my life has turned out. And so on. Of course, there are many ways to say that. And then the illusory self tries to very hard to find a solid ground and tries to, to build an indestructible structure on it. But the ground keeps shifting. And the walls of the structure keep cracking. It's inevitable. There is no way out. The walls keep cracking. This reminds me, I thought about it, it reminds me of my grandmother who, she lived in an old house and I think the ground was a little shaky there. I don't know exactly geologically what was going on, but the walls kept cracking. And she used to say, the walls are smiling again. Mm -hmm. That was her way of, I think, taking it lightly. But maybe, maybe she was in touch with something. I don't know, I think she was in touch with something deep because she actually did, in many ways, show equanimity. Her attitude towards life, 
the way she dealt with changes. She was a wonderful teacher to me. So the walls keep cracking. The walls will crack. The walls will crumble, whether we want it or not. They are coming down. But without some awareness of the fundamental, the constantly changing reality, or the constantly changing and crumbling walls, become scary and devastating for us. Reality itself becomes devastating. Master Dongshan once was asked, was asked a monk, what is the most tormenting thing in the world? The monk said, hell is the most tormenting thing in the world. It's a good answer from a book. Dongshan said, no. He said, when that which is draped in these clothes is not aware of the great matter, that I call the most tormenting thing in the world. We experience that. The heart of suffering is there. Not accepting reality as it is. Not accepting selfless reality. Creating a self. Is the root cause of suffering. And we are tormented because no matter how hard we try to cling to life, it keeps changing on us. No matter how hard we resist, it always amounts to futile attempts. And sooner or later, of course, we have to agree and we have to be in alignment with the way things are. With a selfless reality, with impermanence. So maybe sooner is better than later. So we don't create more suffering. So what do we do when we encounter the grasping self? Now we think, well, Maybe it's an illusion, but it's a very powerful illusion. What do I do with it? How do I deal with it? How do I subdue this energy in me? And the Buddha, of course, after realizing it, spoke about it. And he told his disciples, I will now teach you agitation through clinging and non-agitation through non-clinging. Listen and attend carefully. Then he said, what is agitation through clinging? Here, the uninstructed worldling, or non-practitioner, who is not a seer of the truth and is unskilled and undisciplined, unskilled and undisciplined in the practice, regards form as self or self as possessing a form. Meaning, this is my body. My body. I am the one who is identified with this. Or self in form. Right? Self in this body. That form of his changes and alters. With the changes and alteration of form, his consciousness becomes 
preoccupied with the change of the form. Another wrinkle in the face. I'm not as strong as I was. I'm not as beautiful as I was, or whatever. But then we go and get Botox. And then he said, agitation and a constellation of mental states born out of preoccupation with the change of form remain obsessing his mind. Because his mind is obsessed, he is frightened, distressed, and anxious. And through clinging, he becomes agitated. He regards feeling, feelings as self, perception as self, volitional formations as self, consciousness as self, or self as possessing consciousness, or consciousness as in self or self as in consciousness. That consciousness of his changes and alters. With the change and alteration of consciousness, his consciousness becomes preoccupied. It's a very important word to look at, preoccupation. Becomes preoccupied with the change of consciousness. Agitation and a constellation of mental states born out of preoccupation with the change of consciousness remain obsessing his mind. Now, because his mind is obsessed, he is frightened, distressed, and anxious. And through clinging, he becomes agitated. It is in such a way that there is agitation through clinging. We experience agitation on the cushion. It's what we primarily work with. Restlessness. And what he's doing here is tying, he's making connection between restlessness and creation of a self, and clinginess. And then he asks, what is non-agitation through non-clinging? Here, the uninstructed disciple, who is a seer of the truth, and is skilled and disciplined in the practice of the Dharma, does not regard form as self, or self as possessing form or form in self, or self in form. That form of his changes and alters, obviously. Despite the changes and alterations of form, his consciousness does not become preoccupied. No agitation and constellation of mental states born out of preoccupation with changes or form remain obsessing his mind. Because his mind is not obsessed, he is not frightened, distressed, or anxious. And through non-clinging, he does not become agitated. He does not regard feelings as self, perception as self, volitional formation as self. Well, everything we think about, everything we experience is not a self and is not personal. It doesn't mean we do not experience it. It just means nobody owns it. Nobody owns the body. When nobody owns the body, who is becoming offended? Who is frightened? Who is agitated? 
it says, his consciousness does not become preoccupied with the changes of consciousness. No agitation and constellation of mental states born of preoccupation with the change of consciousness. Nothing remains obsessing his mind. Because his mind is not obsessed, she is not frightened, distressed, or anxious. And through agitation, through non-clinging, through non-clinging, she does not become agitated in such a way, in such a way that there is no agitation through non-clinging. Non-clinging leads to no agitation, does not lead to restlessness. Clinging leads to restlessness because the restlessness is about the made-up self is about the gap we create that in reality does not exist, the gap between self and other. Now the first and second noble truth speak of that. The first noble truth simply states that life is suffering. That's it. Just states life is suffering. This is only a static statement, right? That points at the state of us as human beings, the state of our lives. Now, the second noble truth sheds light on the reason we suffer and offers a possibility for a more dynamic approach. It says we suffer because we grasp, because we cling, because we attach. We habitually become attached to opinions, to possessions, to places, to people, to the way we look to a job title, a profession, level of education, intellect. And we believe that the objects of our attachments are verifying a separate self, the one I can call me. Because if we are asked, or we ask ourselves, who am I? We run to those details to verify, here is who I am. The name, the job title, the amount of money I make, my age, family relations. Where else is the self? What happens when all these details are put aside for a little while? When all the thoughts are put aside for a little while? When the head is put aside for a little while? Then who am I? That is exactly what the Buddha spent all these years doing. And after that, that is exactly what he spent 49 years teaching. It all comes down to that. Realization of no separate existence. Right? And the Buddha's realization and the subsequent teachings offer a portal into the true essence of our being. So we can open up the grasping hand. We need to do that. He didn't do it for us. Actually, nobody can do it for you. And we can reduce the suffering that is caused by clinging. In this sutra, I just quote, the Buddha points at the connection between agitation and clinging. 
and how our grasping minds lead to restlessness and how non-grasping mind subdues their restlessness. Essentially, what he says is that when we become preoccupied with the self, and we do, every day, preoccupied with the self, when we become preoccupied with the self and then everything it attaches to, we experience agitation. We become restless because we know that we can't protect it. We know the truth, but we fight it. We resist it. And of course, resistance creates agitation, fear, anxiety. Especially when we know that resistance essentially will never work. There is nothing we can do to change reality or the nature of reality. I mean, we try very hard, many ways. But eventually, it all comes crumbling down. It's not a bad thing, it's just the way it is. So better now than later. Better realize now than wait until later, because between now and whatever that later is, or whenever the later becomes, we are going to create a lot of suffering and deal with a lot of anxiety and restlessness. So why wait? Why wait? And then he says, of course, when we are not preoccupied with the self and all its precious possessions, then we experience calmness, contentment, equanimity. Alignment. And awareness is a great antidote, is a great way to work on that. Because through awareness, we become aware of a grasping mind and at the same time aware of reality as it is. When we single-mindedly attend to life, single-mindedly, step by step, action by action, movement by movement, where is the self? You don't give yourself anything to cling to. You just lose, your, you lose this self into moment by moment activity. And that is by itself a process. It's not one activity that's going well, one activity always cuts it, but it's not just single activity that's going to open it up for us and then we are fully awakened. No, not going to happen like that. It's again and again and again. Wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. Snap out, snap out, snap out. Moment by moment. And then something happens, a miracle happens, actually, because we do wake up. And we do become more compassionate, more kind, more loving, more caring. Because there is nobody there that is arguing with that internally. There's nobody in there that says, I want a different reality. I want to be somewhere else. I want to be with someone else. 
I think we have to learn to treat our thoughts and emotions and feelings and whatever we experience when we sit and moment by moment. We have to learn to treat those as kids. They can be very annoying at times, but we don't throw them out, although sometimes we may want to. We keep them. We love them. But we have to be patient and kind. So we sit, we don't move, and then a thought comes and says, let's go somewhere else. Yeah, not for, yes, we will, but not just now, in a little while. And if we do it, if we keep doing it, we subdue the restlessness. We don't give a self something to possess, something to hold on to, something to chew on. We don't feed it. And at the same time, while we do that, we are feeding something else. A different kind of energy. This always brings me back to one of my favorite quotes of Rumi. And we'll finish with that. Rumi said, I looked for myself, but myself was gone. The boundaries of my being had disappeared into the sea. Waves broke. Awareness rose again. And a voice returned me to myself. It always happens like this. Sea turns on itself and foams. And with every foaming bit, another body, another being takes form. And when the sea sends word, each foaming body melts back to ocean breath. One ocean, many drops. Each drop is the ocean. When a drop feels separated from the ocean, the nightmares begin. When a drop of ocean realizes that it is the ocean, peace comes, equanimity, Contentment. So December 8th, it's a day of Shakyamuni's realization and a day to take on the practice so we realize. So we are grateful through our practice, not through memories not through reminiscing something.